0: It's good to again see all of you here this morning Uh, as we turn our attention to hearing God's word proclaimed, we return here to the book of Revelation. So turn with me in Revelation to Revelation chapter 8. Returning there, I admit I'm a little nervous having seminary students here about to preach from the book of Revelation, especially since uh, I'm not always in agreement with Dr. Waldron who teaches eschatology at the seminary. But I hope and trust that our time in God's word will still be profitable here together. So as you're coming then to Revelation chapter 8, I think it's good for a moment for us to reflect upon some questions. Like, what does your prayer life look like? And as you pray, what are your prayers focused on? How do you feel when you pray and nothing seems to change? How valuable do you really find prayers to your own soul in your day-to-day life? Well, if you're like me, you struggle. You struggle because your prayers can seem very self-centered. And you can get frustrated when nothing changes after you pray over and over and over again why I can even neglect time in my prayer because I simply don't find it as valuable as other things that I should be doing but as we all know God has called his people to pray and so this morning he actually gives us a glimpse of how our prayers work so may this vision from revelation then fuel our prayers as we live in this world struggling and suffering as believers in Christ. So let's then read together Revelation chapter 8 with this in mind. Here the Apostle John writes, that when Christ opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets, Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. So the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. And the first, first angel sounded, all hail and fire followed, mingled with blood, and they were thrown to the earth. And a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. And the second angel sounded, And something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Then a third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood, and a third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the water because it was made bitter. Then the fourth angel sounded and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon and a third of the stars that a third of them were darkened. A third of the day did not shine and likewise the night. And I looked and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blast of the trumpet of the th- three angels who were about to sound. Brothers and sisters, before we devote ourselves to understanding this word, let us again pray to our God. Father, please speak to us through these words of Scripture. Oh, how we need to hear from you afresh this morning. So we pray that. I will simply become the mouthpiece through which you proclaim the glory of Christ and your judgment to come for sin through this message. And may we then learn from this, Father, how our prayers work in accomplishing the very purposes for which you've laid out in this world. Lord, in my weakness, may You be shown strong and may You empower these words then through Your Holy Spirit to take hold in our hearts, to refresh our souls so that we will rejoice in Christ each day that we continue to live in this fallen and sin-cursed world. So, Father, we pray you'll be with us and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. What does this vision then reveal to us about our prayers? That God answers our prayers by accomplishing his plan. God answers our prayers by accomplishing our plan. In other words, God does answer our prayers as his plan is accomplished in this world. So we see this in the first half of the chapter, verses 1 to 6, as our prayers are answered. Our prayers are answered, but then in verses 7 to 13, the second half of this chapter, you see that God's plan is accomplished. So our prayers are answered. And God's plan is accomplished. Let's begin then by looking more closely here. And as we do so, recognizing that in this book, God is revealing these symbolic visions of prophecy to the Apostle John for him to record in this book. So that Christ's churches will be encouraged as we face the temptations and trials and troubles and tribulation of life in this world. So here he's really pulling back the curtain of heaven to show us what's going on behind the scenes as we live in this world. As followers of Christ. And so it's through Revelation then that we see God who is sitting on his throne as the one who is sovereign over all things that are happening through this age. Which is why God has a scroll in his right hand with the plan of redemption. And it includes both God's salvation of his people and his judgment against the the wicked as they are recorded and written on the scroll. And it is sealed, ready to be carried out by the one who is worthy. And of course, who is worthy? But Jesus Christ. He is worthy to carry out God's redemptive plan as the one who has shed his blood through his death on the cross under the judgment we deserve and he has now risen and is now reigning in heaven at God's right hand so we see in revelation Christ starting to carry out this redemptive plan by opening the seven seals one at a time which then releases God's judgment Upon the earth. But even as Christ's church struggles and suffers in this world, including our persecution and even our martyrdom of being killed for our faith in Christ, we're reminded that Jesus is in control of all that is taking place. He is the one who is opening the seals, which is why before the seventh seal is opened here in chapter 8. God reveals that he protects and preserves his people from his wrath by sealing us and saving us through Christ so that we will persevere in this present evil age. So it's with this confidence in mind that we come to the seventh seal at the beginning of chapter 8. And something surprising happens here. Because unlike the previous seals, the angels take no action. But there's silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Now, what does this silence mean? Well, there are, like many things in Revelation, many interpretations. But if you think about why we take a moment of silence, it's because it's a time for us to reflect either on what has happened or on what is about to happen. And so here, as we read of this silence, we sense the seriousness of the situation. Because here in heaven, there is a dramatic pause to reflect on what is about to come next. Imagine a complete silence for 30 minutes. If we had the time here this morning, I could do so right now. Might be a little awkward for us. But it will give us time to reflect upon God. And here in heaven, they are quietly anticipating God's judgment. Which is why we read in Zephaniah 1, verse 7, Be silent in the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is at hand. For the Lord has prepared a sacrifice and he has invited his guests. Or we read in Zechariah 2, verse 13, Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he is aroused from his holy habitation. And so now that Christ has opened this seventh seal, the scroll itself is now opened so that the events that are written on the scroll can begin to unfold on the earth. Which is why John then sees seven angels standing before the throne and they're given seven trumpets. Now, where before have we seen seven angels? Remember, there was an angel that oversaw each of the seven churches receiving the letter. And so it's likely here that these seven angels may very well be the same seven angels over the seven churches, which, of course, represent Christ's church through the age. And since they have been given these trumpets, we once again see how God is in control because these angels are given the trumpets by God to serve him in executing his judgment on the earth through sounding each trumpet. Now, trumpets are used throughout Scripture for many things, including the announcement of a king, military conquest, and temple worship. And and all of these really seem to be involved here when these angels are given the trumpets. But remember that this heavenly vision not only pictures a throne room from which God rules as king, but it's also a temple in which God is worshipped. So why we then see another angel, who comes before the temple altar in heaven, where worship is offered? You may remember it's under this altar that Christians who were killed for their faith are now praying for justice, as the fifth seal was opened. And so it's to this altar that the angel brings much incense in a golden censer, which was much like the golden bowls full of incense in chapter 5, verse 8. But let's take a moment then to picture this angel with his golden censer and what he's doing. Because the censer was used in the Old Testament temple worship when the priest would take a large pan and fill it with hot live coals and then add incense to the coals so that sacrifices could be made to the Lord. Well, here we now see there's a priestly service in heaven. There's a priestly service taking place for us through this angel. And like the golden bowls in chapter 5, this golden censer includes the prayers of all the saints which are offered before the Lord. Do you see then that our prayers are brought into the very presence of God in heaven here? But what are these prayers that this angel brings before the Lord? Well, it's the cries of the martyrs from the fifth seal. Those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. In chapter 6, verse 10, they cry out, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And these prayers are brought up before the throne of God as a pleasing aroma. And so it's through the grace of Christ then that our prayers are pleasing to God and accepted at His throne. They are brought up as smoke here that is pleasing to God, that ascends before Him from the angel's own hand. But look at how God responds to these prayers. That after they are lifted up before the Lord, God now sends an angel, this angel to again fill his censer, but this time with coals of fire from the altar to throw down on the earth. Which is why Grant Osborne rightly declares that the priestly angel becomes an avenging angel. And the same altar that brings our prayers to God is the altar that now brings God's judgment on the earth in answer to our prayers. So what finally ends heaven's silence? the noises and thundering and lightning and an earthquake that come as God responds to the prayers of His people. These same noises and thunderings and lightnings and earthquake are what Israel experienced as they approached Mount Sinai in all of God's holiness. And so once this angelic offering of prayer to the Lord has been completed, we find the seven angels are now prepared and ready to blow their trumpets in answer to the cries of God's people. So do you see the relationship between our prayers and God's will in these verses? That since God is sovereign over human history, he has written on the scrolls all that will take place. Everything that is happening has already been written down. Yet it is also through our prayers that God's redemptive plan is carried out. Our prayers are what God responds to in preparing these angels to sound their trumpets. Isn't that amazing? That we are involved in the carrying out of God's plan as we come before Him in prayer. And so God not only determines the ends, but he determines the means to those ends. He not only determines what will happen, but he determines how he will bring them about. And he brings them about through his people praying. It is through our prayers then that God accomplishes his plan. This is why Jesus teaches his disciples to pray in the Lord's prayer. In this manner, therefore, pray our father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And here John records in this heavenly vision that God hears and will answer this prayer. God's name will be hallowed. God's kingdom will come. God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this will occur by God bringing justice and judgment into the world. So in answering our prayers, Christ's church then will finally be vindicated after all of the suffering and all of the persecution that we have endured through this age. So, brothers and sisters, let us not grow weary in praying. Because God is in heaven hearing our prayers as they come before His throne as a pleasing aroma. And when we do grow weary, may this vision come to our minds. May God remind us of these things that He is listening and will answer our prayers when they are prayed according to His will. And as we pray, may we be those who pray for God's justice to come, that God will indeed avenge the opposition and hatred that this world has for Christians, either by God converting their souls and bringing them to repentance and to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, or through their condemnation under His judgment for living in rebelling against God in sin. We are those who want righteousness to reign in this world. And this righteousness either comes through Christ or through the judgment of sinners. So may this indeed spur us on to pray because our prayers are answered. But then this brings us to the second half of the chapter where we read of God's plan accomplished, verses 7-13. to You see, through the rest of this chapter, the first four trumpets are now sounded by the angels. And just as the seven seals were divided between the first four and the last three, you had the four horsemen of the apocalypse followed by... Then the last three seals. So the trumpets repeat the same pattern. You have the first four trumpets here, followed by the final three. But look at what happens each time as these trumpets are sounded. We have God's judgments thrown down from heaven as natural disasters throughout this created world. Which is why they come against the earth and the seas and the rivers and the springs of water and the suns and moons and stars, or sun and moon and stars. But this means that while we shouldn't necessarily see natural disasters as a result of specific sins, we should recognize natural disasters are the result of sin in this world. So when natural disasters occur, we are reminded that this world has been corrupted by sin and comes under the curse of sin, which brings God's judgment against sin. Yet even here, these judgments are controlled by God. Because they're limited. Over and over again, how are they limited? They're limited to one-third of these areas. And they're limited... To provide an opportunity to repent in the midst of this judgment. Now, as we consider then these trumpets, remember they parallel the Egyptian plagues. Because here God's people are seen as spiritual Israel that are ourselves in an exodus waiting to come to our heavenly promised land to come. And so we see these parallels then when God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt by confronting Egypt with his greatness and the inferiority of their supposed gods. And here the whole world is confronted with his greatness and the inferiority of their supposed gods through these trumpets, as they sound. There's also another echo of these seven trumpets through the fall of Jericho. You remember the walls of Jericho falling in Joshua chapter six. They march around the city for six days. And yet on the seventh day, they march around the city seven times. And what happens? Seven priests blow seven trumpets to announce God's judgment against the city and his people's triumphant victory as God gives them the city. Well, the same is happening here as the seven trumpets blast So as these first four trumpets are sounded we see God's holiness and righteousness that are contrasted with the things of this world and the idols that we turn the things of this world into in our sin and they are judged by God So let us then briefly consider each one When the first trumpet sounds what happens But hail hail and fire are mingled with blood, and they then burn up one-third of the vegetation, like green grass, or or, or like the trees, and all of the grass. And this, of course, is like the seventh plague. Can you read in Exodus 9 verses 13 to 35 when Moses stretches out his rod towards heaven and God sends a severe storm of heavy hail and fire to the ground and the hail then struck every herb and broke every tree of the field except in the land of Goshen where the children of Israel were. But you see, this plague, this Egyptian plague pictures a greater judgment to come on the earth where fiery hailstorms burn one-third of humanity's very food supplies. I mean, here we have a retired firefighter among us who's fought fires through the years. But this is far more of a burning than uh, the most significant and severe firestorm. But it consumes one-third of the earth. Far worse than any forest fire. To where there is blood spread everywhere. And the earth is scorched. And the very food that we eat through the trees and the vegetation are removed. But second, as the trumpet is sound, we move from the land to the sea. With a great mountain that is burning with fire thrown into the sea. And so a third of the waters there become blood, which leaves a third of the fish and the sea creatures dead. And a third of the ships that are destroyed. Now, this is like the first plague. In Exodus 7, verses 14 to 21, where Moses strikes the waters with his rod and God turns them into blood. So that the fish die and the water stank so that no one would drink it. But again, this picture is a greater judgment. Because here a burning mountain is thrown into the sea or something like it. And some see this as a volcanic eruption, possibly the uh, Roman, uh, an example of the Roman Mount Vesuvius as it exploded in the ancient world. But whatever exactly this describes, it seems to be a fulfillment of another prayer Jesus taught his disciples to pray in Mark 11, verses 22 to 24. Because there Jesus answered and said to his disciples, Have faith in God, for assuredly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be removed and be cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Therefore I say to you, whatever thing you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them, and you will have them. The Very mountain will fall into the sea through the prayer of God's saints. And so in this second judgment, the food supply continues to be decimated through the death of fish. This also then comes to the very trade and commerce that is necessary to bring goods where they are needed, where a third of the ships are destroyed. So imagine the food supply, being upended and destroyed in many ways? And that ships cannot deliver goods where they need to go? We're very dependent on ships for what we need, right? A few months ago, you remember what happened in the Suez Canal? Had a ship blocked in there and, and, and literally stopped trade for six days and the world almost just seem to go crazy about what would happen. But again, this is far worse. A third of the entire waters here now compromised in judgment. Then we come to the third trumpet where there's a, a great star named wormwood that's burning like a torch and falls into the third of the rivers and springs of the water and and a third of the waters here become wormwood with many dying from drinking this bitter water again this is similar to the first plague of Egypt because there it took place in the Nile river and Egyptians couldn't drink the water but what is wormwood well it's a bitter herb that was very potent and made water undrinkable. And so it came to symbolize sorrow and judgment and even death in the Old Testament. And you may remember that after God's plagues, when his people were set free from their slavery in Egypt, they went into the wilderness and they could find no water. So when they finally come to water... We read in Exodus fifteen twenty-three, now when they came to Mara, they could not drink the waters of Mara, for they were bitter. Therefore the name of it was called Mara, and of course the word Mara means bitter. But when they then complained to Moses, he prays to the Lord and is shown a tree that he puts in the water and makes it sweet. You know what happens here? That this miracle is reversed. In the judgment of God, good water turns bitter. And once more, this bitterness is greater because this bitter water becomes poisonous and brings death. You know, we take drinking water for granted today. We can turn on a faucet and and drink the water. We can go to the store and buy bottles of water. But in this judgment, the water supply is compromised. So you see that through these judgments, how great of a famine comes upon the world. It includes mankind's food, our goods, and our very water supply, which we need to live. That's why there's so much death to come through these verses. But that brings us to the fourth trumpet. Where a third of the lights of the sky are darkened, with the sun and the moon and the stars bringing darkness to a third of the day and the night. And this is like the ninth plague in Exodus ten, verses twenty-one and twenty-three, when a thick darkness comes upon Egypt for three days, and only the children of Israel have light in their dwellings. And while the light uh, and, and while the darkness here is limited in the fourth trumpet trumpet. It's also greater than the Egyptian plagues, since this is a complete darkness over all the lights of the sky around the world, and and, and they do not shine or have light. Yet once more again, we see how God is in control. Listen to the language that's used there. We read, and the third of the sun was struck. By whom? By God a third of the moon and of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened again by whom? That is, God. See, what God made shine, He can also make dark. And through all these trumpet judgments thrown upon this created world, we see how great our God is and how holy and righteous He is. See, He will not allow such great sin and wickedness to continue on this earth. There is a day of reckoning coming. There is a day of judgment to come. Which is why as this chapter draws to a close, John hears an eagle. Now this eagle likely symbolizes an angel, which is how it's translated here in uh, my translation, but... This eagle is flying here in the midst of heaven. And we often see an eagle as a sign or symbol of coming judgment through the Old Testament. So, for example, God warns his people Israel through the prophet Hosea in Hosea 8.1. Set the trumpet to your mouth. He shall come like an eagle against the house of the Lord, because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. And now this eagle comes to announce three woes. Woe, woe, woe. And since God has already been declared thrice holy, that He is holy, 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 now His angel warns woe, woe, woe. Our thrice holy God brings thrice woes that are announced on the wicked who refuse to repent and remain in their sins. And so these three woes warn those in the world that there are three judgments yet to come. And while the first four trumpets were thrown down upon nature, the remaining trumpet blasts will be brought down on the inhabitants of the earth in their wickedness and opposition to God and of Christ's church. So I ask each of you this morning, are you ready for this judgment from God? It's only Christ protects us from the wrath of God that's coming. It's only Christ who, out of love for us, takes the very wrath of God we deserve and endures it through His death on the cross. It is that in Christ that we escape the coming of this judgment. It is through Christ that we then are reconciled with our God. And it is in Christ we have a glorious future on the other side of His judgment. As there is an eternity of righteousness we look forward to in God's very presence. So if this is not your hope, if you have not been saved By the blood of Christ, oh, turn away from your sins and repentance and turn to Christ in faith. This judgment is coming. Take upon yourself. Christ, by faith, is the very one who endures this suffering for you through His death on the cross. Because when we believe in Christ, it's not only that we escape this judgment, but this judgment becomes our vindication. When all wrongs will be made right and where God's righteousness will fully and finally be revealed in the world to come. So that we can enjoy a world then free from all sin from all wickedness, from all evil. Do you see then how God answers our prayers by accomplishing His plan? Isn't that beautiful? That God answers our prayers by accomplishing His plan. And so it's through then our struggles and suffering that our prayers for justice will be answered in God's coming judgment against this world. Now, I like how Jim Hamilton summarizes these truths when he writes that God judged Egypt in order to deliver Israel. And in doing so, God was responding to the prayers of his people. The book of Revelation is showing us the ultimate exodus, but this time it is not a mere nation that God is judging, but the wicked world system that is raging against God and his people. So as the exodus in Egypt, God is going to judge the wicked world and deliver his people in response to their prayers. You See then how God answers our prayers by accomplishing his will. But what does this mean for us as we pray? There's at least four things I want us to remember that come through this passage. Right, Four things to remember about us as we pray first. Let us pray with faith in Christ. Do you remember how this chapter begins? By Christ opening the seventh seal. Because it is through His loving care that history unfolds. And our prayers are brought before the throne of grace. And it is through our prayers then that this judgment comes as we pray for the mountains to go in the sea. May we then have this kind of faith in Christ. Will then bring us in our prayers before the throne of God as a pleasing aroma. But second, not only should we pray with faith in Christ, but we also must pray with a kingdom focus. Again, how does the Lord's Prayer begin that Jesus teaches us? Our Father in heaven hallowed be thy name your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven and it's this prayer that the martyrs then cry out to god is this what our prayers look like if if, if you were to write down your prayers through a week and look back at your prayers how much of those prayers would you say is kingdom focused Look, personal prayers are good. God wants us to bring our, our requests and our concerns before Him. But what does Jesus say? Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. We are to be a people praying for, then, Christ's kingdom. Praying for God's king to come, or His kingdom to come and His will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we pray with faith in Christ. We, second, pray with a kingdom focus. Third, we pray with patience. You remember how the martyrs' prayers were brought before the Lord? How did it begin in Revelation 6? How long, O Lord? Can't that be the cry of our hearts as we struggle and suffer in this world? How long, O Lord? But the martyrs' prayers were not answered immediately. They were told in the sixth seal, a little while longer. And so too for our prayers, God may say a little while longer. Which is why we need to be patient. Recognizing that God is working out His plan and accomplishing His plan according to His perfect time. According to His perfect will. So we need to pray with faith in Christ. We need to pray with a kingdom focus. We need to pray with patience. And finally, we need to pray with hope. Because this prayer for God's name to be hallowed and His kingdom to come will be answered. There's no reason to doubt our prayers for God's kingdom here. That our cries for justice will be heard and brought to bear on the earth. May we then praise those with hope, with a patient and enduring hope in what is to come. So, again, let us pray with faith in Christ. Let us pray with a kingdom focus. Let us pray with patience. And finally, let us pray with hope. Because we are a people that are waiting for this coming eternity. This heavenly future that we look forward to in God's presence. What we find here in Revelation chapter 8 is that it is through our prayers that we will endure and persevere through the temptations and the trials and the troubles and the tribulations of life in this world. So with this Glimpse, then, of how our prayers work from the book of Revelation. May this vision fuel our prayers as we struggle and suffer in life. Listen, there is hope in Christ. There is a future in Christ. We must be patient. But in our patience and as we wait, let us devote ourselves to prayer. Prayers of faith in Christ as we pray for God's will to be done and for His kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. So let us now pray again. Oh, Father, how wonderful it is to be reminded through this vision of what happens when we pray. that as we live in a world that remains opposed to God as we remain in the world that hates Christ church our prayers will rise before your God or before your throne as a pleasing aroma may we then be those eager to pray as those who are waiting and ready for the glorious future You promise us in Christ. So that we will persevere in this world in the strength that Christ gives us in the Holy Spirit that is at work through us, Lord. May we do this to bring You glory as we look forward to dwelling in Your presence. Father, we pray then for all these things in the name of our glorious Savior and King, Jesus Christ. Amen.